Hey, good evening. Welcome to another week of Bible Study Fellowship. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 25 tonight. We are continuing the Olivet Discourse, which Jesus began in Matthew 24, and we'll pick up where we left off last week, but let's pray. Father, thank you for the uh, great privilege it is to be students of your word. Uh, Thank you, Father, that uh, the disciples had free access to you uh, as you explained to them about uh, your signs of your coming, the time of your coming. Thank you, Father, that you've given the Holy Spirit to us as your disciples today to be able to learn uh, from him as we seek to understand what will it look like when Jesus returns. How will we know when this is happening? Lord, I pray that you would uh, teach us from your word tonight, and uh, I pray, Lord, that you, your spirit would be working and active in our lives. Amen. So, uh, when I was about four years old, five years old, it was time for me to start going to kindergarten, and I didn't like it. I, I didn't like the idea that my life and my time was going to be structured and set up the way that somebody else saw fit, namely my kindergarten teacher. I really liked the way that my five-year-old life had been when I was calling the shots. I was doing the things that I wanted to do, and school was miserable for me. I didn't enjoy my time in kindergarten, and really uh, it was until about like 12th grade uh, when I finally was able to understand like, oh, this is for my benefit. But I think that as we come to our passage tonight, that's one of the realities that we have to grapple with as people is that, you know, we really do want to live our lives the way that we see fit. We do want to call the shots. We do want to be the ones who are in charge. And whether it's our kindergarten teachers or our employers or our parents or even the Lord of the universe, we can struggle with the idea that somebody else has a way that they want us to live, a way that they want us to spend our time. And I think as we look at Matthew 25, the second part of the Olivet Discourse, we're going to see that God does have expectations for the way that his people live until Jesus returns. God does have expectations for how his people live until Jesus returns. A couple of things, just in overview, let's talk about where we are. We're uh, coming to the last week of Jesus' life. We're in the city of Jerusalem. The triumphal entry has occurred, and uh, Jesus has interacted with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and his opponents, And now he is interacting with his disciples, and this is uh, the final block of teaching in Matthew's Gospel. It's called the Olivet Discourse because it took place on the Mount of Olives. It began in 24 with a question that the disciples asked, namely, uh, the disciples said to him, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And so the Olivet Discourse, in some way, shape, or form, is Jesus' response to his disciples about uh, his second coming. Vicky set us up last week where uh, there were some key items that Jesus mentioned and taught about in Matthew 24, namely uh, some of the issues of what are the signs, what are the markers of Jesus' return, And then when will it occur? And so a lot of 25 is going to build on those ideas, and it's going to really focus on how is it that the disciples, and by extension, uh, all of God's people, are supposed to live as we wait for Jesus' return. 
uh, we're going to see three parables that Jesus gives in this section that help exemplify or provide information on the way that God's people are supposed to live. Now, please keep in mind, there is no clear explanation that Jesus gives of these three parables with the parable of the sower, right? Jesus laid out very clearly, the sower is this, the seed is this. This is exactly what's happening. We don't have that here. So please uh, do not interpret my words as being overly dogmatic. Uh, I'm, I'm making some assumptions and inferences on what's happening in these uh, in these parables. But when no clear explanation is offered by, by Christ, who, who gave us these teaching, it's difficult for us to really definitively say like, Everything stands for this. And so um, just please hear my words with grace and and, uh, know that other people who are trying to interpret this are struggling with the fact that the great teacher Jesus did not offer complete details on these parables. We're going to look at all three parables in their own section. So we're going to look at the parable of the virgins. We're going to look at the uh, parable of the talents or the bags of gold. And we're also going to look at the parable of the sheep and the goats, all as their individual section as we work through Matthew 25. We've got a lot of material. Let's get started. Matthew 25, 1 through 10. The parable of the 10 virgins, uh, really uh, an explanation of watching. What does it look like to live with expectation that Jesus will eventually return. Let's look at some of the content. First of all, uh, Jesus starts off by saying the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now, as people that are no longer alive in the first century, we're living in the 21st century, we don't know what first century marriage ceremonies looked like, but the overall process of getting married in the first century was that there were four parts. There was a betrothal, which could have happened well in advance of the actual wedding. Uh, We saw this with Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph were betrothed. Uh, They were not formally married, but it was definitely, there was a commitment, there was a legal standing. So there's betrothal. There's a marriage certificate. We don't read about that anywhere in the New Testament. There is a processional, that's what we're looking at here, and then a feast. Now, the processional usually occurred... Uh, in the evening, it would begin at the bride's home. The bride and bridesmaids, these other virgins, would travel with the bride's father to the groom's home. They would pick up the groom, and then they would proceed to a tent. Uh, there's a name in Hebrew for the tent. I won't try to say that. But there was a tent where the marriage would be completed underneath this tent, and uh, then there would be a feast. The feast could last for many days. We did see Jesus and his disciples at a wedding feast in Cana. And so this event happened at night. So the, the all of the illumination for this event, whether it was the processional or it was the wedding itself, would occur with lamps. Uh, and so the significance of the lamps for the bridesmaids is that it was a critical part of the wedding processional and also the wedding ceremony. And uh, one of the things that happened in this particular parable is that the bridegroom was missing. He was absent. He was delayed. He wasn't at home. And so it would have been impossible to start the processional, which goes to the bridegroom's house, if he wasn't there. And so the chain of events that has happened in this parable is that the bride, the bridesmaids, the virgins, and the bride and everybody else, they're waiting They're waiting for the bridegroom to arrive so they can go forward with the next phases of the wedding celebration, namely the processional, the ceremony, and the feast. 
And we know right away that of the, of the bridesmaids, the virgins who were waiting, five of them were heralded as being wise, and five are heralded as being foolish. Now, they had similarities. They had lamps. They were ready to go. They were at the processional. They all fell asleep. They all wanted to attend the feast. But there was one key difference that Jesus calls out in his parable, and is that one of the groups had brought extra oil for their lamps, and one of them had not. Now, we might look at this parable, and we might look at what happens as the parable unfolds, where, you know, they wait a long time, they fall asleep, and then all of a sudden it's time to go, and five of the bridesmaids are low on oil. And we sort of are surprised at the fact that there's no oil sharing that happens. Uh, in the parable that Jesus tells, sharing was not really the main point of the story. And so in the story, you know, the, the, the problem between the foolish and the wise bridesmaids was not going to be resolved by just redistributing the oil. Let's just go around and let's, let's share all the oil, and then we can, everybody can go on, all 10 of you can go on to the procession. There's a deeper problem that's, that's present in the heart of these bridesmaids, and this waiting time, the preparation time that they're in, is revealing that heart condition. And, and uh, the, Jesus tells us as the parable winds up, you know, we have uh, five bridesmaids who ultimately are in the processional, go to the wedding, go to the, go to the, the wedding celebration, and then five bridesmaids who miss out. And when they try to get in, the bridegroom says, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Uh, and the ultimate uh, takeaway from the story, verse 13, Jesus's words, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is picking up on some themes from Matthew 24, but Jesus is telling us that this is a parable about watching and waiting well. Well, how you watch and wait for someone tends to reveal if you really care about it. For the five wise bridesmaids, participation in this event was really important. They didn't want to miss it. They took needed steps to make sure that even if the event ran a lot longer than they were anticipating, they would still have the needed oil to be part of the procession, part of the wedding. And as a result, they would get to attend the feast. We know the foolish virgins at some level wanted to go to the party. They tried to get in, but they were not willing to take the steps needed to ensure that they would not miss it. We'd like to think that, you know, sharing of oil would be the way to resolve this problem, but it, that isn't the point of the story. The, the, the point of the story is that the unprepared bridesmaids didn't care. It didn't matter enough to them to be prepared, to be watchful with everything that they needed to be ready for the groom to arrive. They didn't love the groom and care about the groom and care about the wedding in the same way that the wise bridesmaid did. They had other priorities that day, other things that they wanted to do with their time, other things that were more important than getting ready to wait and watch for the bridegroom at this particular wedding. They didn't care. They weren't concerned. They weren't engaged enough to do what was necessary to be wise bridesmaids. And so when those bridesmaids show up at the, at the wedding feast looking for entrance, the groom has harsh words. The groom says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. 
If the virgins had known who the bridegroom was, if the virgins had cared about being at the event, they would have made sure that they were prepared. But they weren't. And so they missed out on the opportunity to celebrate the wedding feast with the bridegroom. The principle for this first section is that God's people are called to watch expectantly for the return of Jesus. God's people are called to watch expectantly for the return of Jesus. I grew up in upstate New York, and I had some family that lived in Massachusetts, and many times in summer vacations, we found ourselves somewhere on the New England coast. And one of the features that I remember from houses that were in this this coastal part of the country was that many of the houses had a little like cupola or a little house that was built on the very tippy top of the house. And we were told or we learned that these were called captain's watches or conversely uh, widow's watches. It, It was a place where the wife of a sea captain could go and watch and wait for the very first signs of her husband's ship to return to port. You know, the reason that the wife was up there is because she loved her husband. She was eagerly anticipating the return of the captain to home. She was longing for the return. She was spending time every day up and the widow's watch, looking out on the horizon, waiting to see when her husband's ship would return. I'm sure it was lonely. I'm sure it might have been windy. It might have been cold. It might have been uh, whatever. It wasn't maybe what the captain's wife wanted to do, but it was so important to know when will the ship return that uh, the captain's wives would go up and they would watch and wait for the return of the ship. Well, I think as, as you and I come to this passage, the question that we are called to ask ourselves is what kind of widows are we? What kind of bridesmaids are we? Are we those that care? Are we those that that are so connected and, and in love with the groom and desiring the goodness of the groom that we go the extra mile? Or, or do we have concerns and other things that we would rather do with our time that take us away from watching and waiting well? What are some of those concerns or worries or things that, that you want to do with your life that pull you away from potentially preparing to watch and wait well for Jesus. I Work for me is something that pulls me away from watching and waiting well for Jesus. What is something that you struggle with in your life? Well, what are some ways that you have watched and waited well? What are some times in your life when you have set aside what you would want to do and instead you were up looking and, and focused and thinking about, about Jesus, about his return, about his person, hoping that maybe today will be the day when Jesus returns. I know one of the things that was hard for me for many years as I began to think about Jesus' return is that, you know, I didn't think I was ready. There were many things that I still wanted to do in this life uh, before Jesus returned. And perhaps you have concerns or fears or anxieties over things that you haven't done before Jesus will come back. Will you take those concerns and worries to the Lord? The next parable is a parable uh, of the talents or the bags of gold. Uh, and really what we're learning here uh, in this parable is that the, the life of, of those dedicated to the master is to live in service to that master. Now, uh, just to call out here, the word that probably your translation in the, of the Bible and mine uses, the word servants. And this is a fine translation of the word. 
Uh, it's a Greek word. It's the word doulos, and that word is translated slave appropriately, but also servants. And so we need to keep in mind that these three men who receive wealth from their master are not employees. They're not clocking out at the end of the day every day. These are these are servants. These are slaves. They belong to the master. The master would have provided their food, their clothing, a place for them to live, medical care, all of their needs would be provided as a result of their position in the master's home. And so in this story, Jesus tells, the master is going to go on to a long journey and he entrusts significant amounts of property to three men in his service. One of them, uh, the t- a talent is roughly 20 years wages for someone who was a laborer. So when someone's getting five talents, that's 100 years of work. That, that he is receiving in, in wealth. This was a significant amount of money for all three of the men who received it. And we can see that uh, the master gave out portions of his wealth based upon his assessment, the ability of those men who were receiving it. One of them, one of them received five, one received two, one received a single talent. Now, it also seems, it's not stated here, but it also seems like the servants understood what they were supposed to do. Uh, the two servants immediately go out and they begin to uh, use the money that was given to them by the master to earn additional wealth. The third servant probably understood what was going on, but we don't hear about him until later on uh, in the story. So these first two servants, we don't know exactly what they did, whether it was trade, uh, maybe they started a business, maybe it was a a late night oil shop uh, for widows. We, We don't know what they did, but they used the master's money. They spent their days and their hours working to earn additional wealth for the master. Now, all that they had, whether it was their food or their clothes and their shelter, belonged to the master. But the money that they earned would also go back to the master. And we can see that these first two servants were willing to work to increase the wealth of their master. The first servant earned five more talents. Again, a significant amount of money that would potentially go back into the treasure, the treasury of the master. The two-talent servant also was willing to go out and work and earn money for the master. And, and put money into the treasury of the master. Even though these two men, the first two men, earned different amounts of money, the master's commendation of them is identical. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so we see what happens with these first two. Now, we know that the other servant had not operated the same way. The one-talent servant had buried his money in the ground. Um, When he speaks to the master, his emphasis is to say, Master, I am giving you back what is yours and nothing else. Now, we don't know exactly how long the master had gone away. We know that he was going on a journey. He was going to be gone for some time. Maybe he was gone a day, a week, a month, a year. We don't know. But these servants, whatever their job was when the master was at home, right? Maybe they were, I don't know, maybe they they, they cooked or cleaned or swept. I, we don't know what their work was. But when the master was gone... These servants had one job and one job only. That was to take the wealth that was entrusted to them and uh, use it 
to you know make additional wealth on behalf of the master. This one servant is unwilling to do this. He's already has an opinion of the master, which suggests that his master wasn't really all that great. He describes him as a hard man. He also implies that he's a thief, reaping where you do not sow. If you're doing that, the only explanation is is that you're taking grain, you're taking crops from somebody else. And so this servant was unwilling to work and to put in time and to put in effort to increase the wealth of his master. So all he was able to do was to give back the talent that the master had given to him. He'd been willing to live in the master's house and eat the master's food and uh, be clothed for the time the master was gone, but he was willing to do no work on behalf of the master, lest he increase the master's treasury. This really reveals the heart of the servant. He hated the master. He thought he was cruel. He thought he was a thief. He didn't deserve more wealth. He certainly didn't deserve the time uh, of this servant. And so we can see the master uh, is angered with the servant. He calls him wicked and slothful. And ultimately, the servant is cast into outer darkness, the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The principle for this section is that God expects his people to serve faithfully until Jesus returns. God expects his people to serve faithfully until Jesus returns. It reminds me of Major John Howard, uh, who was given the critical task of taking and holding the Orne River Bridge as a part of the D-Day invasion on June 6, 1945. Howard was famously commanded to hold until relieved. Hold until relieved. And Howard and his team uh, took control of the bridge at 12.10 a.m., on the early morning of June 6, they had to now wait for soldiers who were a part of the seaborne landing to march several miles from the coast to their position. Uh, Howard had no idea how long it would take for the soldiers to make it to make it to him, but his job was to hold until relieved, by himself, alone, cut off surrounded, without support, without supervision, Howard had a very clear job to do. Now, Howard could have taken two different paths, right? As we've seen with the servants, he could have decided to be a faithful servant, which is ultimately what he did. Uh, and, And he listened to the words of his earthly master, and he did exactly what was expected of him. He held until relieved. The other two servants... The master was gone. He wasn't there to supervise. He wasn't there to organize. He wasn't there to give directions. Their job was to go and independently continue to serve the master uh, by taking his talents and, and investing them and using them well. Howard could have also decided to go the way of the slothful servant. He could have been, I'm by myself. I'm on my own. Nobody's here. Nobody knows what we're doing. We could just surrender. We don't have to fight. We don't have to face this impossible task. And so we can see that as with John Howard, he did his duty well, alone, without support, without, uh, without anybody watching him other than the enemy. He was able to hold for 13 hours behind enemy lines until he was relieved. Two of the servants showed their, their worth showed their love of the master, their commitment to the master, by serving him faithfully despite his absence. But one servant 
He only served the master when the master was around. He didn't love him. He didn't care for him. And so his actions reveal his heart. If you look at your actions, if I look at my actions, what do our actions reveal about our heart towards the Lord? Are you a little bit like me in kindergarten, frustrated and a little bit angry that somebody has a stake in your life and you want to do things your own way? Uh, Are you a little bit like uh, John Howard and these other two servants who are faithfully working and waiting, even though it doesn't seem like God is present watching and observing uh, what we're doing? You've continued to be faithful despite uh, what seems like limited oversight from the Lord. Uh, What have your actions revealed about your heart and how your heart feels towards the Lord? Let's move on to the last parable. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. Uh, As we look at the story, uh, there's a parable where the nations are gathered before the glorious throne of the king when the Son of Man comes, and he will separate them into two groups, those on his right and those on his left. And what we learn about the separation is that the separation is based upon the works that these people did. There are four works that are cited by the king, providing food, providing water, welcoming strangers, providing clothing, visiting the sick, and visiting the prisoner. I realize it's a lot more than four, but those are the items that uh, the king cites as being the criteria to be a part of the sheep and a part of the goats. Um, The king explained, uh, well, first of all, neither group, the sheep nor the goats, remembered rendering any sort of service like that to the king. Uh, Here's what the sheep said. The sheep said to him, uh, when did we do this, Lord? When did we see you hungry? Verse 37, when did we feed you? When did we give you a drink? When did these things happen? And the Lord explains that the things that they had done for the least of these was something that he took upon himself as if they had done it to him. Uh, The sheep had done these activities to the least of these in, in God's kingdom, while the goats had not. Uh, we can see that in this story, the, the love of the king is expressed in love for other people. And, and again, what is the difference between the sheep and the goats? Is it the heart? Uh, is it the things that they did? Or is it their heart? Is it a heart condition that has resulted in the people uh, taking action? Uh, I would suggest to you that the hearts of the sheep had been changed while the hearts of the goat uh, had not. And so the principle for this section is that God expects his people to live like Jesus lived. God expects his people to live like Jesus lived. You know, I was thinking about uh, the, the role that we have as we attempt to follow Jesus and do the things that, that he did. And in that reality, you know, Jesus is sort of like, you know, you could pick the sport that you'd want to use for this, but like, Jesus is like the greatest soccer player in the universe, you know, I mean, he's just like, can do these amazing magical things with the ball. And he's it just has this incredible skill and ability and gift. And, you know, we as like the adopted sons of Jesus are like, you know, the, we're like the three-year-olds playing soccer, which looks something between, you know, picking grass in the field and at, at best like magnet ball. And, and I, think, I think of the, the beauty of the Lord of the universe is that in both situations, uh, God is on the sideline of these games, and he is celebrating the achievements of his true son, Jesus. 
Uh, We see that repeatedly throughout the Gospel of Matthew. This is my son. With him I am well pleased. Uh, We see God celebrating the accomplishments of Jesus. And we also see God celebrating the accomplishments of his adopted children. Uh, These people who are classified as sheep have moved into God's family. They are his adopted sons and daughters, not because of what they did, but because of what Christ did to be able to make a way for them to enter. And God is celebrating the things that they did to the least of these. So he is celebrating the way that his people, immature and and, and, and confused and and three-year-oldish as they are, God is celebrating what his children are accomplishing. The question for you and for me as we contemplate our actions is how well do our actions line up with the pattern that Jesus set? Uh, Jesus' heart was fully dedicated to the Lord, and so Jesus' actions lined up with his heart. And if you think about your heart, if you think about my heart, how well do our actions reflect the reality, if this is true for you, that you've been given a new heart by the Lord? Are our actions in our hearts in line? Perhaps there's some parts of your life, there's certainly parts of my life that are out of line. What are those things that need to change? What are the things in your life that need to stay the same? The things that are already lined up with the the actions that Jesus did. What are the things that you need to do more of? What are the things that you need to increase? And what are the things that you need to let go of as you and I seek to live a life that is similar to the one you know, we're living the three-year-old version of, of Jesus's life. I think one of the things that, that uh, this passage reveals to me, and certainly the parable of the sheep and the goats, is that God is aware of the things that we do. He sees the things that we do. Uh, and, and how do you look and think about God's observation of you? Do you think of him as like a, a person, you know, waiting somewhere to jump out from behind a tree and say, ah, caught you sinning, uh, some sort of a vindictive law enforcement officer, or do you think of God as the loving father? You know, as I've reflected upon my time in kindergarten, the people that sent me to kindergarten, namely my mom and dad, uh, did not have it in for me. They were not out to get me. It felt like it, but my mom and dad really wanted what was best for me. They wanted me to learn. They wanted me to grow, and going to kindergarten was a part of it. Um, what perspective do we have on God in our in, in in your life and in my life? You know, do we do we do we think that he just he just wants to make our lives miserable? He just wants to force us to do things that we don't want to do, or or do we see God as celebrating our accomplishments as we seek to emulate Jesus? Do we see Him as correcting our mistakes because He loves us, not because He wants to punish us? Uh, the Bible does teach that that God is looking to work in our lives for things that are good for us and bring glory for him. Let's pray that we would be able to see that this week. Father, thank you for uh, the fact that you are aware of what we're doing. You care about us. You want us to thrive. You want us to live lives that uh, will bring change to the world, uh, glory to glory to you, uh, and and good things for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand that. Uh, Lord, our temptation is to think that you're just thwarting our spirits, thwarting the things that we want to do, Lord. But help us to realize that you do have our good 
in heart. Uh, help us to understand that this week. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.